This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. So if you've got a Bible, we're in Luke chapter 1 for the fourth week in a row, but we're going to be in verses 26 through 38. And today, we're going to meet Mary, not Mama Mary, many of you have already met her. But we're going to meet the Mary who is arguably the most significant and blessed woman in the history of the world. And I want to pray, and then we'll begin. God, today I would, uh, just again, as we just prayed a second ago, I would like to request on our behalf that you would send us the Holy Spirit, just as you sent the Holy Spirit to Mary that we're about to see here. You, you, you put your spirit inside of her and she learned of Jesus. She learned of who he was going to be. She learned of the savior he would be that she would give birth to. And my prayer is today that we would learn of Jesus just like Mary learned of Jesus. And that as she responded in faith to the revelation of who Jesus was, that we too would respond in faith to the revelation of who Jesus is today. And so, God, as we open your word right now, we ask for that faith, the faith like Mary's. And we ask for it in Jesus' name, her son and our Savior. Amen. So I said that I think that Mary is perhaps the most significant and most important woman in the history of the world. And that's not to put any of you other women down. You're very important and significant as well. But as you will find out, Mary had an incredible task uh, today. If you don't already know her story. And Mary's story actually began uh, with the very first woman who was ever created, and that was Eve. And that's all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And so what I'd like to do is begin there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which is something that you'll see correlates with what we're going to talk about today, with these verses that we will have before us today in Luke chapter 1. So God created all of creation. God made Adam and Eve, but he made everything. We know, we believe that God created everything that we know as his creation. And then he created man and woman that we know was Adam and Eve. And he made them in his image and in his likeness. And he granted them with particular dignity and value and worth, each one complimenting the other. And, you know, I love, I just love the story. I mean, I, I could go on forever about this and I shouldn't, but like whenever I do marriage counseling, one of the things I love to tell is this story of creation because God creates everything. And every day that God creates something, he looks at it at the end of the day and says, it is good. He created the, the heavens and the earth. It is good. He created the water and he separated the water from the dry land. It is good. He creates all the creatures that fly and the ones that swim. It is good. The creatures that walk the land. It is good. And he gets to the sixth day and he makes man and he goes, ah, it's not quite good enough. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's, it's really what happened. I mean, he looks at man he's like, because he actually says what the Bible says is he says, it is not good for man to be alone. And I think the reason why we see that is because we know that God creates humanity in his image. His desire was to create a human who would portray and express his image to the world. 
be an illustration of who God is in his image and his likeness. And man by himself was not good enough. And so God creates woman and his desire was to put them together in a relationship. And together, man and woman together actually bear the full image and likeness in our sinful state. But we actually bear the image and likeness of God. And I love that. I love that picture of creation. And so God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden and he gave them a, a command that they could enjoy it, live in freedom and enjoy their life. But he just forbid them to, to eat of, of one tree in that garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sadly, our first parents disobeyed. And because they disobeyed, we have now re received the same nature that, 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 and the same curse that was put on the rest of humanity from that time. And that is sin. Sin entered the world. And rather than believing and loving God and pursuing God, uh, you know, that's what they did. And God, because he is gracious and good, rather than leaving them alone and allowing them to die like he told them what happened if they did sin, he came to them and he pursued them and he spoke to them here in Genesis 3:15 just as he speaks to us and in Genesis 3 verse 15 we have this marvelous verse that theologians call the proto evangelium all right the proto evangelium it's a big word and it's fancy and i didn't i didn't just know that i looked it up this week okay but what it means is the first gospel so it's the first time the gospel is preached. So God is showing up and he's preaching against Satan, the serpent, who tempted them, who tempted Adam and Eve. And God says to the serpent, to Satan, in Genesis 3, 15, he says this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that's, 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 it might be tough to understand what's going on there. But what is the answer then to human sin? That's, that's what God is doing. He's like, look, I'm not going to forsake. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and do something. I'm going to go on with my plan here. And my plan is I'm going to send a savior. God's answer to human sin, God's answer to human rebellion, to folly and separation from God is what? A son will come through the line of this woman, Eve. God's speaking to Eve. And there will be a battle between this male son and this dragon, this serpent, Satan, and that he, the Savior, he, it says, he will be wounded. Satan will wound him, but then Satan will be defeated. And so from that point, all the way from that point forward, in our Bibles, what our entire Old Testament is, is God's people eagerly looking for that day. The day when God promised, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, that he would send one who would ultimately destroy Satan's sin and death. And God's people would anticipate the birth of this particular son. And they knew from that moment it was going to be a birth, that someone was going to come to them. So all of Jewish history then is about when will this son be born? When will this one come that's going to conquer Satan and sin and death and hell and the wrath of God and be our savior and be our forgiver and be our deliverer? When's he going to come? So history proceeds forth from there. And, a pro and then prophets come up. Prophets are raised up by God. And as you get toward the middle of your Bible, a prophet named Isaiah is raised up. And this is some 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And he prophesies further revelation about the forthcoming of this son, this child that's going to be born. And in Isaiah 7, verse 14, it says this. The Lord himself will give you a sign 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I mean, you talk about a specific prophecy 700 years before the birth of Jesus. That is what was given to the people of God. So he, he spells out this, prop, this, this, this word that God had given them all the way back in the Garden of Eden. He spells out this word a little more specifically and says, there's going to be a sign that you'll know that, the, that he has come. And that is he's going to be born of a virgin. A virgin will conceive. She'll bear a son. And they're going to name him Emmanuel. And his name, Emmanuel, means God is with us. God is with us. And so they shouldn't miss this. Right? They shouldn't miss this. I, I tell you what I love about that. I love this is what I love about the Christmas story. You know, every false religion in the world is about is based on the lie that we uh, fell into back in Genesis chapter chapter three. It's based on the idea that you can be like God. That's what Satan did, right? He came to Adam and Eve and he said, he said, did God say that not to eat of this tree? I mean, the reason why God told you not to eat of that tree is because He knows that if you eat it, you'll be him. You'll be like Him. You'll be just like Him. And that's what Satan does is he takes a, and a little bit of that was true. Their eyes were open and they understood good and evil just as God understood good and evil. And so Satan takes, but however, they, they couldn't be like, they couldn't be sinless. They couldn't be God. They couldn't be all powerful, all knowing, omniscient, omnipresent. They couldn't be him. So Satan took a little bit of the truth and he twisted it just enough to make it a lie. And that's what every religion is based on because what religion does is it tells you that the, the, more, the more things you do, the closer you can get to being like God. You can be like God. You're going to be like God. And so do this, do this, do this, do this. But Christianity is not about us being God. It's about God becoming one of us. God came to us. That's what Christianity and what the Bible teaches. God comes to us humbly. We don't arrogantly try to become like him. We do try to live as Jesus lived, but we'd have no bones about the idea that we can become God. Just as what the lie is about. And so there was this expectation, this anticipation, this, that this son is going to be born one day, someday. And, and it's going to, he's going to come through a virgin. And that's what leads us to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to begin in verse 26. And that's where we're going to be the rest of the time this morning. And so you, you should be able to just stay right there if you want. Allie's like, Phew, good. She's always looking up those verses. Thank you very much, by the way, for your service. So the son was born, and what we'll know about the son is he's going to be the one who would crush Satan. And in doing so, he'll be able to forgive sin, and he'll be the one who would deliver people, everyone who would believe. And he was born to a virgin, and you're going to meet her in just a moment, Mary, and she lived, uh, he lived, for, rather, he lived without sin. He died in our place to be our uh, to be to take on the sin as uh, upon himself. He died as our substitute, as our punishment, fulfilling all the temple ministry. So everything that was done in the temple, as you come and bring a sacrifice, was completely fulfilled in Jesus. All of the old covenant covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. 
And so his, when his blood was shed for our sins on the cross and he rose for our salvation, he then he, he verified it by appearing and teaching hundreds of people. And then he ascended into heaven and this news of Jesus Christ started to spread. It went from a small group of people to a larger group of people, mostly beginning with Jews. And then it spread out to the Gentiles. We know that Paul was called to be a, a minister, a missionary to Gentiles. And he would go and he started churches in Gentile regions. So people who were not by Jewish by descent actually began to, to hear and live, uh, believe in Jesus and live for Jesus as their king, as their Lord, as their God, and as their Savior. That's who Jesus was. And so what happens is we know that news of this, of this reached the ears of a man named Theophilus, who's in verse 1 in chapter Luke. We learned about Theophilus a few weeks ago. He was likely a very wealthy, affluent political man who had a lot of means and a lot of stature and a lot of significance in the government, a lot of prominence, a lot of authority. And he heard about Jesus and he was deciding whether or not he wanted to wholeheartedly give his life to believe in Jesus. Like there were, I, feel, I, I sense that there may have been like this wrestling in Theophilus about whether or not he wanted to be actually a fully devoted Christian. He didn't want to simply devote himself to something without first investigating all the facts, especially because of his position in the Roman government. And so he set aside a large sum of money and he gifted it to this affluent, articulate medical doctor named Luke, who wrote the, 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 the Gospel of Luke who we also know from other historians in that day that he himself was a very gifted historian, Luke was. So Theophilus, like Luke, was a Gentile. He was not of Jewish descent. And so Theophilus probably assumed that, hey, since Luke also didn't grow up reading the Old Testament and waiting for you know, the Messiah, that he would be a little more objective in his investigation. You know, it wouldn't be like, Hiring someone who was of Jewish descent who was sort of predisposed to believe in a Messiah, right? So Luke was not one of those. Luke, so when it comes to things like, hey, was his mother a virgin? I mean, did, did Jesus rise from death? Who would be better to investigate those pretty enormous claims than a medical doctor, for example, which Luke was? And so Theophilus hires Luke. He funds Luke to go on this investigative journey to go and meet with eyewitnesses, to go and look at all of the oral tradition that had been passed down, to comb through the other gospels of Mark and Matthew, and to read other written accounts that people had, had transcribed about their, their, uh, their experiences with Jesus, to compile all of this information about Jesus and to himself write an orderly, truthful, historical, factual, accurate account of who Jesus was and is and what Jesus said and did. And so Luke's gospel then becomes the longest of all the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so Luke took years of his life. He took years away from his medical practice to, in, to just do this great endeavor, to take on this great endeavor to write this, this book for Theophilus, for one man, so that he might know that he's putting his faith in something that is true. And it culminated in him writing not only Luke, but also the book of Acts. As we know from, from after Jesus, the church then begins. And Luke goes ahead and records how the church began as well, as he's the author of Acts. And so I say all of that. I go back and I, I remind us of that. Because when we learn about Mary today, you need to infer that Luke actually sat down with her and interviewed her. He would have gone to Nazareth. 
Like if, if, if Mary's still residing in Nazareth at the time that Luke is doing his investigation, he, he would have gone there and he would have sat down with her and talked with her about the things that he writes about. That's what Luke was doing. That's how Luke wrote his gospel. He went out and investigated. And so by the time Luke in, you know, interviews Mary, she wouldn't have been the young Mary that, that she was when she had Jesus. She was probably the grandmother Mary. This is probably some several, several years later. She was likely in her 60s or 70s. And so you need to think of the, the older Mary and Luke sitting down probably for hours or maybe days. We don't know how long, just interviewing her, right? I mean, just imagine it. Mary, tell me your story. Is there anyone that can, that can back up and confirm your claims that, you know, uh, that, you know, like, could I talk to your doctor? You know, I mean, is there, any, is, is that, is that person still alive? Or do you have friends or family members? You know, can you give me just whatever evidence you might have to support your claims? Is there anything that you can give me? And I, I just imagine Luke just doing a really good job as an investigative journalist going out and speaking to these people, particularly Mary. And so after doing all of his research, including interviewing her, he writes down what we read here in the beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. He says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now there's a lot there, and I want to unpack that for a second. We've already met Gabriel. So last week, Gabriel shows up to, uh, to Zechariah, right? So Elizabeth and Zechariah are the, the, the parents of who was going to be John the baptizer, who was going to be the forerunner, the one who would tell of the coming of the Messiah, that the Savior's coming. And so Elizabeth is, is a relative to Mary, uh, a cousin to Mary. And so we know that Gabriel, who comes to Mary to speak to her, that, that God sends an angel to, to Mary. Gabriel has gone and spoken to, to Zechariah, said, hey, your wife, who we know is, is barren. She's been unable to have children. She's actually going to be pregnant. She's going to give birth to a son. Your prayers have been answered. You're going to name that son John, and his name means God is gracious. God is going to show his grace to us. And so now we know it's in the sixth month. Of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That's what it means when verse 26 says the sixth month. So it's in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So it's connecting these two people. So Mary would be unaware that Elizabeth is pregnant because we're told that Elizabeth went home and she was greatly blessed by God and she kind of kept quiet for five months. Plus there was no way for her. There was no social media or Facebook for her to say, hey, guess what? I'm pregnant. And there was no cell phone. She couldn't text Mary. So Mary would not have known that Elizabeth was pregnant because we know that, that Elizabeth when, you know, she just basically sat at home and worshiped God for five months, you know, and just kind of getting things ready to be a mom. And so Mary, unaware of all these things that have transpired, is just who knows what she's doing. Maybe she's bringing water back from the well and an angel appears to her. Gabriel is sent on God's behalf to Mary to bring good news to her as well. And so I want to say this, too. By the way, we here at, at always we believe in angels. And the reason why we believe in angels is because the Bible tells us that they're angels. Angels basically are, you know, they are messengers of God. They, we believe, uh, you know, they, they, are, they are beings that have been created as well that love and obey God. And God uses angels. We, there are some angels that, have, that are being used for good and other angels who are not good. And those are called demons in the Bible. Those are ones that decided that they could be like God as well, just as Satan did. Satan's a demon. And that's all he is. I mean, he's, he was an angel that fell. And that's all that there's a, there are several of those as well that try to persuade people to follow them, to follow. And, and, and it's just so there's this battle. That's why there's this constant spiritual battle that's going on. 
So angels are messengers and ministers on God's behalf that are sometimes sent to speak to people. And sometimes you, you know, they may recognize them as, as angels, but most of the time they probably didn't until later. And they realized that was an angel, especially when they come and they tell you their name, right? And that's what Gabriel does here. There are actually, of all the angels spoken of in the scriptures, there's only two that we know that, that were given names, that, that actually have names in the Bible. You've got Gabriel and Michael. And so if you get an angel, it's a good day. If you get Gabriel, it's a really good day, right? So she gets Gabriel. So in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So let's talk about Nazareth. Nazareth is nothing, all right? Nothing, I mean, and this is, this is what's really amazing to me. And this is something that I really love about this story and about just Jesus' story, the, the story of God sending himself to be with his people. Where did he begin? Nazareth. <laughs> and Luke, this is one of the reasons why Luke is such a phenomenal storyteller. Because Nazareth is mentioned here in Luke, but it's not mentioned in any of the Old Testament at all. It's not mentioned in any of the other historical documents like the Catholic Church uses the Apocrypha. Nazareth's not mentioned there. It's not mentioned in the Talmud. It's not mentioned in any other historic uh, record like Josephus, an ancient historian who lived in that day who wrote other history. He doesn't mention Nazareth. And the reason why Nazareth is not mentioned is because no one important came from Nazareth. Nothing important ever happened at Nazareth. There was not a town that you would go to. It was a town that you just passed through. And if you, know, if you were to go to Nazareth today, or if you were to look up Nazareth today, you'll get a false impression of it. Because today, Nazareth probably has, I don't know, 100, 200, 300,000 people in it. So it's a much larger city today in the Middle East. However, in that day, Nazareth would have only been 150. It wasn't hundreds, it was, it was dozens of people. It was, that was all it was, very, very small. Today it's made up of, uh, I looked it up this week, it's made up of about 60% Muslim, 30% Jewish, and 10% Christian in Nazareth right now. So, but in Jesus' day, it was not a town of, of, that, of that mass. It was, it was a town of, of uh, 50 to 100 people, no more than that at the maximum, probably a few hundred people. And so it's a really simple rural town. It's between two cities. And so it was like... It's an exit, right? It's not, it's, not, it's not any place that people would venture to, but you might stop there to get gas and use the bathroom and scrape the bugs off your windshield, get a corn dog and a Slurpee, something like that, right? But then you want to get out as fast as you can, right? Let's get out of Nazareth, right? Um, I guess if you're the band, you might go down to Nazareth because uh, Fanny, take a load, if you want to take a load off Fanny, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I had it in my mind. I had it. I know Jim knows that song. Yeah, that's right. So now you're going to be singing it all day. Take a load. We'll sing it as we leave here today. I'm teasing. It's a small rural town. It's a small rural town. That's all it is. It's a pass-through town, right? It, there's farming. Well, there's one. Archaeologists tell us that they tell us that there was one farm in Nazareth. And uh, people that lived there, they just, they, they would heat their homes with wood. They wouldn't have, uh, there was no indoor plumbing. Obviously, they'd go out and take buckets to the well, haul in their own water. These are extremely simple people. And so even, any, and even, I think I mentioned this last week, even in those, those homes of 500 or 600 square feet, uh, and those, that's all those homes would be, uh, part of that home would have been occupied possibly by your livestock even, because they would need a place for shelter as well. And so you would be sharing it with your cattle. And so in Nazareth, you're looking at really simple people, right? Right? Really, really rural people. The majority of people who lived in Nazareth were just that. That's that would be their that would be their culture. They were probably, I would say, the majority of people that, that were they were probably illiterate. 
And, and, I mean, it, it was as simple as simple can get. And the angel Gabriel shows up. Where? Nazareth. This was altogether unexpected. Nathaniel and John, Nathaniel is one that was called to follow Jesus. And in John chapter 1, verse 46, he actually says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that was the, that, it was a rhetorical question because they knew the answer. Now, the assumption there is no, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So you're trying to tell me that there was a, that, that God came out of Nazareth? Yeah, that's where God went to. For those of us who live in a rural southeastern Ohio town, and we call it home, this is particularly encouraging to me, right? <laughs> that Jesus chose to come to Nazareth. So Gabriel comes to Nazareth, to a virgin. We know, verse 27, Mary is a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So now we meet Mary and Joseph. So historically speaking, a lot has been said about Mary and Joseph. We're reminded of Mary and Joseph every year at Christmas. And we have these little nativity scenes that we set up in our homes. And we see them as we drive around and look at Christmas lights. And we commemorate Mary and Joseph. And there's so much refinement, I'll say, over the story that it's hardly recognizable when we think about them. Because all we think about sometimes is the Christmas story and the Christmas polished Joseph and Mary. And so what I'd like to do is sand that down a little bit. All right, let's get out the belt sander and sand it down and see what we really have. Who was Joseph? He was young, probably. I mean, I mean when I say young, he was a teenager. Uh, he was, I mean, in that day, they would have married at about 13, 14, 15, or 16 years of age. I mean, somewhere in there. And, and we know that Joseph was a carpenter. We know that he probably didn't have a lot of money, as, as many in Nazareth did not. It's a simple little town. Simple people lived there. Simple jobs. Uh, he, was, he was from the line of, of David, the kingly line of David. Um, and so what I want you to do when you think about Joseph is you got to think about this. you got to think about a junior high boy who can't grow a beard, right? And he really wants to because he's already doing manly things. He's already doing adult things. And he's going to marry Mary. Right? He's going to raise Jesus. And he doesn't even have his license yet. That's who this is. right? He's a broke kid working a simple job, hoping to meet the woman of his dreams. And he finally does. Meets Mary. Actually, probably met her when they were really young. I mean, they both grew up in the same little town. It's a small town. If there's only 50, 100, 200 people there, there aren't a lot of marrying options. right? And so he probably knew her already. Joseph and Mary likely grew up together in this small little town. Their families probably knew each other. They may have even been friends. Maybe Joseph had a crush on her ever since he was a little boy. Maybe they just kind of, maybe they, you know, played with each other and poked each other and kind of flirted with each other. And they just kind of grew up together. And, and Joseph's parents and Mary's parents were like, you know what, you're going to be married. And that's kind of the way things were. And maybe she was the girl of his dreams. I don't know. It's just amazing. I think it's amazing how God brings them together in his providence. Because we know that Joseph was a good man because of how he responded to this incredible news. I want to, speaking of God bringing people, can I, can I tell you, take them aside here and tell you guys something? This very church camp, all right, right outside there where that campfire used to be. <laughs> so this, this building and that building next door weren't here. Years ago, like in the 80s, this was woods. Where we're sitting was all wooded area. These were trees. So out there, there was a campfire. And that campfire was the first place where I held the hand of the girl who would later be my wife. Yeah, we were just kids. Just like, 
and this is relevant, I'm not just saying this, right? So we were just a little kid, we were kids, right? We were young, young, high school kid, attending a retreat in the September of 1988. A few months prior, someone had introduced us to, uh, to one another and we started talking and we were at this retreat and during the campfire, I just kind of reached over and, and just kind of you know, test the waters, right? Just reach over and, 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 and she responded and she, we held hands right there and I've gotten to spend the rest of my life with that girl. So that's, that's our story. Mary and Joseph may have had a story like that. Growing up in a small rural town, they may have had a story like that. They knew each other since they were kids. Their families would have known each other. It's a small community where you just kind of know everybody. That's, that's Joseph. So what about Mary? What we know about Mary is we learned that she was betrothed. And we hear that word, and it likely doesn't register or make as much sense to us because we do marriage a lot differently in our culture. Betrothal was a pledge to be married. I mean, we have something called engagement, which is similar, but it's not. You can't, you can't equate engagement with betrothal. And I'll tell you why. Cultures have changed over the years, especially this, you know, and I think one of the reasons why we have a hard time with a story and thinking about a 13-year-old kid being pregnant or a 13-year-old kid getting married is because one of the changes in culture is that we have cre essentially, we've created this thing invented it in the last couple hundred years called adolescence, which essentially allows people to remain perpetual children well into their 20s. Adolescence was not a thing. I, I don't believe it was God's design. I just don't. There were that you were a child and you were an adult. There are children and there are adults. And at some point, it's time for you to stop being a child. At some point, it's time for you to grow up and be an adult. And, that's, and this thing called adolescence is not something that I think we should adopt. I do not believe we should. I think we should expect more of people when they get to that age where it's time to start doing adult things. Because it's obvious that it can happen. It happened. And God called the very one that would carry him, the savior of the world, God called a 13-year-old. Historians tell us that she was very likely between 13 and 16 years old. No older than that. And that's what happened here. So that we know that it, during that time, she was betrothed. She was going to be married. And so what a betrothal would be is, is, a, is, a, is it would be something that would last a year. It was a, it was a planned thing. Okay. So in that day, a girl then could be betrothed as young as 12 years old. And then after a year of betrothal, she would get married. So that betrothal period would last a year. Betrothal would begin with a simple ceremony, and you would anticipate the wedding that was going to become. They had a wedding. So the bride and groom love each other. They want to get married. Their parents are all for this. The parents are actually heavily invested, involved in this plan. And they're kind of like, hey, this is God's will. We believe it's God's will. It's a good idea. They love each other. We think that these two people should be married. And so they would get together with a religious leader. I mean, if you're Jewish, it'd be a rabbi, a teacher of some sort. Scripture would be read. A prayer would be offered. And they'd have a sip of of wine to commemorate it and then and then they would they would that would be the betrothal period it would begin right if you're from affluent families they'd have a party after that i mean to, to celebrate the betrothal these families most likely didn't have a party uh mary and joseph's how do we know that because as you continue forward in the gospel of luke we find that mary and joseph after they are married go to the temple and they couldn't even afford a sacrifice and under an Old Testament law, if you couldn't afford a sacrifice, a few bird, you, know, you, you would offer a few birds because that was a provision that God allowed that he enabled in the Old Testament for those who were very poor. And that's what Mary and Joseph offered. They were very poor. 
They were from a poor town, from poor families, and they were betrothed, and they were excited, and she's planning her wedding, right? You're right there, right now, right? You think about it a lot, don't you? <laughs> Ali does, okay? Mary's thinking about it a lot. That's where Mary's at. She's thinking about it a lot. And during the year of betrothal, that, that, would, that would be what's happening. That's, that's, that's her excitement. They wouldn't live together during that year. They wouldn't sleep together. They wouldn't consummate their covenant until they were married. At the end of that year, they would have the official wedding ceremony and the, and the wedding party and all of that. And then they would live together as husband and wife. And they would consummate their relationship with physical intimacy as well as just as, as spiritual intimacy. They were almost there. They were betrothed. And betrothal was so serious that to terminate a betrothal... It required a certificate of divorce. Like you could just end an engagement. You couldn't, a betrothal. You had to actually go and get a certificate of divorce. And you can read that in the opening pages of Matthew because that's something that Joseph was considering when he found out what was going on. So let me tell you something that you might not know about Mary. Mary was probably illiterate as, as many people in that day were. We don't know for sure, but we do know that very few women were formally educated in that day and very few men for that matter as well, especially in a faraway town like Nazareth. It means that they, they wouldn't be able to read or write. And so Mary's connection to God then would have been remembering the scripture that had been passed down to her, remembering the scripture that she had heard read in synagogue when she would attend synagogue. And, and, you know, her, her connection to God would have been singing to God, which we'll see in the coming weeks here as, as we see Mary's song and praying to God. And so I want to I want to do some comparison here from an understanding of Mary that you may have that you may have caught on to because of the historical church. And, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Catholicism. OK, but before I do, I want you to know that I don't hate the Catholics. <laughs> I love the Catholics. All right. But when it comes to Mary, that's their specialty, right? I mean, have you, did any of you grow up Catholic? Anybody? Any, okay. Mary's the specialty, right? Like they, they've like cornered the market on Mary, the Catholics have. And, and many of the pictures, like if you, if you have seen pictures of cathedrals or if you grew up Catholic, the pictures that you probably saw of Mary growing up weren't very accurate, actually. I looked up several images that are displayed in Catholic um, churches and cathedrals all over the world, and I tried to find one, you know, one of the most common-looking ones, and most of them do look something like this. Allie's going to show you here. So, well, that's the temple. There it is. So, so that's, that would be what they would, they, would be the mother, the mother Mary, okay? That's what you see. So one of the things when you look at that, we've got to understand, Mary was not in her 30s. Okay, she wasn't wearing a crown of gold. She wasn't wearing an expensive gown, holding a baby with perfect blonde hair, right? Wearing a white gown, having a gold crown of his own. And, and, and often you see other photos of their heads would often have like a gold halo around them, you know? And, and so, so much of our picture of Mary, which in large part has been you know, circulated via Catholic art, is, is not really that accurate. So when you think of Mary, you actually have to think of peasant girl, uh, peasant dress, pulling water from a well, out collecting firewood to heat um, the home that she lived in. You have to think of a, of a little small town girl who was, was, had dirty feet and maybe some sandals, maybe not, maybe bare feet, walking around on dirt roads. And if anything, you know, she, she's instead of standing on a cloud, she's, yeah, there you go. That's probably more like what Mary looked like when she was called. 
probably sitting on a, on a wooden stool, uh, maybe, maybe with, with, with a, a water basin. You know, and I think one of the most interesting facts is one that I've already mentioned. You, know, you see a picture like the, the one that we saw a minute ago, and we, we immediately begin thinking of Mary as a, as a fully you know, grown woman, a, a woman in her 30s. Mary was a teenager. And Mary, Mary was a young girl. You know, and, and, and we need to let that sink in, right? I mean, for those of you who have been a teenage girl, a 13-year-old girl, right, that adds a little flavor to the story, doesn't it? I mean, today, in today's world, th- I mean, 13, 14-year-old girls, parents don't trust them with an iPhone. How about God? Right? We're going to entrust them with God. <laughs> could you, as a 13-year-old girl, could you handle raising God? You know, we don't even let 13-year-old kids get a license because we don't trust them on the roads. Even with seatbelts and airbags, we still don't feel like they're capable yet of handling some of the things that are that significant. And God comes to this junior high age girl, right? That's the more accurate picture. That's it. So here's what God, through the angel Gabriel, has to say to Mary. We're going to read verses 28 through 33 as we continue on in the story here. He came to her and he said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. Said the angel Gabriel to the junior high girl who probably was illiterate in a really small little rural town. And it says that she was greatly troubled, which would not be a shock. First, because Gabriel appeared to her, and very likely the angel Gabriel appeared as a man, very likely. And men would not have customarily approached and engaged in private with a young woman like that. And so she probably was a little startled. Some of the translations actually say she was startled. And additionally, you hear from the angel that she has found favor with God. And I'm sure she's trying to figure out what that means, right? So Gabriel shows up and he gives this really great announcement. Hey, God has favored you. He's chosen you. He's looked over all the earth and he's favored you, Mary. I mean, Mary, do you remember hearing in the reading during synagogue that a virgin was going to give birth to a child? She would have known this history. She would have known as she would have been one of those Jewish people looking forward to that day. So this Gabriel is like, Mary, do you remember hearing about that? That there was going to be a virgin who would give birth and they would call his name. Emmanuel, he would be God with us. Guess what, Mary? That's you. You get to be that girl. So do you know what that word favor literally means? When you look at favor, it's the word, the same exact word for grace. Undeserved kindness. Unmerited love. So this word is the same word that describes the essence of how we're saved. We're saved by grace. We're loved We're embraced by God, and it's unmerited. It's undeserved. Mary was saved by grace. She was chosen by God to be a recipient of grace. 
And it's the same thing that's true for all Christians. We're recipients of grace, which means God's favor is upon us. God's favor is upon you if you're saved by grace. And so as a Christian, I've received God's grace. He's favored me. If you're a Christian, he has given you grace. He's favored you. It's something that we don't deserve, but God gives it to you. Why? I mean, that might be your first question. Why would God favor her? Why would God favor this little small town girl? What made you choose her, God? And the answer is because he's good. That's always the answer. There's no other reason beyond that. I mean, God could have looked down and said, you know what? I'm going to pick a wealthy young woman. Or I'll pick an affluent, successful, significant woman. I'll pick a big, beautiful town for Jesus to grow up in. I'll pick a wealthy family so that the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, could grow up in affluence and, and wealth and prominence and significance and have the best education. And he could tour and travel and do a lot of other great things. But instead, God looks down and he says, Mary. I choose Mary. It's amazing. It's absolutely it's And it's why. It's why. Look, I, I get disgusted at religion. It's why we, talk, we don't talk about religion here at Oasis Church. Because religion is about what you can do to earn God's favor. In Christianity, in every story that you read, in everything that you see, Christianity is all about God favoring you by grace. Taking nobodies from nowhere and giving them love. That's what he does. And that's why we can't stop singing of how wonderful God is. Because it just never gets old. It never gets old. And so he tells her, you're going to give birth to a son. You're going to need to name him Jesus. And the name means God saves me from my sins. That's what the name of your son will be, Mary. Her son will be her savior. So now her response is really important. Because we looked last week at Zechariah's response, the priest who was Elizabeth's husband, and his response wasn't wonderful. I mean, it was similar, and you might hear some similarities because he began with, hey, how can this be? And then he just kept talking, like, I'm an old man, my wife is old. I don't know how this works in angel terms, but I, I know you don't know people very well, but old people don't have babies. And he just talks too much, and it gets him into trouble. Well, Mary, too, is going to respond in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Since I'm a virgin. I mean, she has questions, as you, as you might expect. But she doesn't have unbelief. She asks questions, and that's fine. And I want to point that out, because I know that some of you sitting here this morning, you might say, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he's my God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he rose for, for, for my salvation. But I have questions. And I've even spoken with people who've wondered, can, I, can that be something that's real? Like, can I really believe in Jesus but still have a lot of questions? Can I still truly be a Christian? And the answer is yes. There's a difference between unbelief, which says, I don't believe the Bible is true. I don't, I don't believe Jesus is God. I don't believe he died. I don't believe he rose. That's unbelief. Questions are, I believe the Bible's true. I believe Jesus is God. I believe he died and I believe he rose. And I got a lot of questions about how that really happened. Christianity is certainly big enough for those questions. And you need to know that. One of the early church fathers named Anselm said that Christianity is faith-seeking understanding. I believe it, and I'm trying to understand it. And I may not even understand it all the way to death, but I believe it. That's Christianity. So Mary doesn't demonstrate unbelief. I mean, she could have. I mean, she, she could have. All she does is give questions. Like her question is, I just need to know how this is going to work, right? I mean, she doesn't say, she doesn't say, 
I'm not sure. I don't know if you know this. You're an angel. I know you angels don't make babies, but we do, and virgins tend not to. Right? Uh, I've not made it to college yet. I'm just young, but one thing I do know is us junior high virgins tend not to have a lot of kids. I mean, that, that's not what Mary is responding with here. She doesn't argue with the angel. She doesn't, she doesn't contest him as Zechariah did. She doesn't disagree with God. Her question is just simply, I believe that can happen. Just how's it going to work? That's a question. It's a fair question. So verse 35, the angel said to her, the angel answered her, this is how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. There it is. It's a miracle. Whenever the Holy Spirit shows up, you know a miracle is going to happen. So something that could not seem possible is going to be possible because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, so now she finds out about Elizabeth, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And here's the greatest line of ever, of all. For nothing will be impossible with God. Do you believe that? God can create everything out of nothing. God can take an elderly woman like Elizabeth, open her womb, and, and give her a child. God can take a virgin like Mary and give her a son. God can take on human flesh. God, the creator of the world, can take on human flesh, appear here as a man, enter into human history as the man, Jesus Christ. And that man could be killed and still rise from death. God can raise him, him, himself from death. And therefore, God can raise you from death. He can forgive you your sins on the cross. God can hear and answer your prayers. God can take your enemies and make them friends. God does everything that we look at and say that is impossible. And the reason why is because nothing is impossible with God. And I love that Luke gave us that. I love that Luke gave us that commentary. Nothing is impossible with God. And this is why we're happy and hopeful, even during a time in our history where so few people seem to be happy and hopeful. All <laughs> right. I mean, it's why we sing. It's why we pray. Why? Because our God is a God who specializes in doing what we know is impossible. And the last verse that we're looking at today, Mary said, this is her response. It's legendary. It's amazing. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. So here's this simple woman from a simple town with a simple faith, but it's very sincere. It's a sincere, simple faith. And she knows very little. She's not been formally educated. She doesn't have the New Testament to study. She has bits and pieces of Old Testament scripture that she treasures in her heart. But here's what she has. This is what Mary has that we can learn from today. She has faith. She believes what God says, even though in her mind, it's not making sense. It's an impossibility what he has just told her. She believes him. And I think many of us, how many, I mean, for, we have so much more information today than what she had. And yet with all the information we have, we have far less faith in it. Isn't that right? I mean, a lot of us tend to think, I need to learn more. Well, maybe you do, but first things first, believe what you've already been taught, right? Mary knows very little, but she trusts it all. 
It's an amazing thing. I think that's why Martin Luther said that perhaps the greatest miracle of all is faith. And that is true. Perhaps the greatest miracle of all is faith. She actually trusts God. She takes God at his word and she responds to him and says, I am the Lord's servant. She puts herself in the hands of God and says, whatever it is that you want to do. I mean, that word servant actually means handmaiden. It's the lowest of all, which says whatever God wants, that's what I want. Whatever God is calling in to be a place, I believe it and I'll, I'll, be, I'll take it. This is an amazing thing. And the reason why it's so amazing is because I know that just like me, many of you have probably had your life charted out. You had a plan and you're hoping that God's going to bless all your plan. But then God might show up and rewrite our script. And what happens? Not very happy about it, are we? When God shows up and rewrites things. Did Mary have a script for her life? I believe she probably did. She's betrothed. She's going to marry Joseph. It's going to be a great wedding. The dress would actually fit. <laughs> and then they're going to have a family, right? They're going to consummate that marriage. and They're going to make other children. And everyone's going to think that, you know, I'm sure Mary's probably thinking, hey, this is going to be my life. Everyone's going to think I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a blessed person, a good person. No one's going to call me a, a tramp or a whore because I'll actually... I, I, I will actually be a virgin. You know, it'll appear that I am a virgin when I'm married. And the angel shows up and says, new script. We're going to rewrite this. And Mary says, whatever the Lord wants, he gets to write the script for my life. I love him. I trust him. I'm his servant. Says this young 13, 14, 15, 16 year old girl. And so I think we read this and we, and we culturally, I think, sometimes miss what she's willing to give up. It's not just she's willing to give up her plans. I mean, I think what we, we need to understand that Mary here does not idolize her identity. Identity is a huge thing in 2020, in our day. Mary doesn't idolize her identity. She doesn't idolize her own comfort, her own security. She's willing to open up her hands and forego all of that and let it all be taken from her. And the reason I say that is because we know Matthew's gospel tells us there was a provision in the law. Actually, Joseph could divorce her and he actually planned to. He actually thought about it until an angel came and intervened with him. It says in Matthew's gospel, he was going to do this. He was going to divorce her. And so what Mary is saying when she says, I am your servant, let it be as you will. She's saying, God, if I don't get to marry Joseph because of this, I'm okay with that. Wouldn't be an easy thing to say for someone who's been planning a wedding. And that's what Mary's saying in response. You know, there was, an also, there was also a tradition in that culture, and you're going to think this is horrible, which I do too, but it's it, it, where... Often to make an example of someone that they believed had sinned, like Mary. To make an example of her to other young women, they, would, they could strip her naked, redress her in rags, and, and go out and abuse her verbally and physically in the town center where, and leave her there for days, calling her a whore and things like that. Just leave her there so that other women would get the idea that being a fornicator and an adulteress is unacceptable. And in some cultures, that still happens. And here's what Mary's saying when she says... I am your servant, let it be. She's saying, if that happens, I trust you, God. I'm okay with that. I'm good with that. I'm willing to let go of Joseph, and I'm willing to let go of my reputation. And you know, for the rest of her life, they did call her those names. We do know that. Because as, as, we, as Jesus was growing up, he would hear. I think in John chapter um, 
Oh, it's leaving me now. Four, maybe. If you look through the Gospel of John, there was a time when they, they actually looked at Jesus and they were saying, well, at least we know who, who our father is. Do we even know who this guy's father is? Who his real father is? Basically, another way of saying your mother slept around so much, you don't even know who your dad is. How can this be the savior of the world? Mary is willing to let go of her comfort. She's willing to let go of her security, her identity, her reputation. She's willing to let go of her marriage. She doesn't, she doesn't even blink. I mean, it's like, it's like instantaneous, isn't it? Her response, I'm the servant of the Lord. Whatever the Lord would have for me, that's what I want. And that's what we see in Mary's response. Your will be done. The lovely thing, I think the one of the greatest things about her response here is that her son gave the same exact response. Remember at the end of Jesus' life in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's praying and he's saying, God, if there be any other way for you to save the world, let it be. However, not your will, not my will, but yours be done. So the son of Mary took after his mother in that moment. He sounds a lot like his mom. And so what happens is from this point forward, from that point forward in Mary's story, history happens and theologians and traditions and agendas set in. And some people end up making way too much of Mary and others make way too little of her. As I mentioned, the Catholic Church does a lot with Mary. They kind of cornered the market on Mary and they've given her a lot. You know, they actually say that she's a co-mediator with God and, and co-redeemer. And the Pope has actually been known to say things like that. And those things are not true. Those are all traditions that were made up by the, 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 you know, the historic Roman Catholic Church. And, and, and you know, they'll say things like Mary did not have any other children. She remained a virgin the rest of her life, which is just absolutely not true. The history, there's plenty of history, including in the scriptures, to show us that Jesus had brothers. Jesus had, there were, they had family members. They had other family, Mary and Joseph. Joseph probably would not have wanted to stay with her for the rest of his life if she remained a virgin the rest of his life, her life, right? And so the, the silly things like that just sort of get in, in the way of what actually was happening, okay? But then, then all of a sudden Protestantism comes out of Catholicism and says, well, they, they made too much of Mary, and so uh, we're not going to make as much of Mary. We're, we're gonna, we're, we'll, we'll make sure that we, we tell Mary's story, right? So every year at Christmas, we say, you know, and in in, in, uh, Mary gave birth to Jesus. Uh, she was a virgin. Okay, now moving along, right? Just sort of skip right by Mary. But listen, Mary is an incredible example to us of someone who, had, who is a, an example of faith. And that's what I want us to take from this. We don't wanna to make too much of Mary, but we also don't wanna dishonor her and make too little of her. That's why I devoted an entire message today to her. And I wanna believe what the scriptures say about Mary. And the scriptures say that she loved the Lord. The scriptures say that she was not a perfect woman, but that she was a woman of faith. And she's the most amazing, I mean, she, when you look at her story, it's an, most, it's an most amazing story. And this is the most amazing moment in her life where she was able to remain humble, willing to let go of her reputation, willing to let go of her marriage if necessary, her comfort and security so that she could just serve God, so that she could lovingly serve Jesus. So Mary should not be our object of faith, but she should be an example of faith. And every man, woman and child should aspire to have faith like Mary's. By the grace of God, to love God, to serve Jesus like Mary did, to have the same kind of heartfelt devotion, affection for Jesus as, just as Mary did. What a wonderful example of faith she is. And so I want to close by saying this. 
what I love about this announcement is that it was not made to a huge crowd of people. It wasn't, this announcement wasn't, like the angel didn't come and announce it to the multitudes. He came to one woman. It wasn't in a big town. It was in Nazareth. It wasn't made to a rich woman. It was made to a poor woman. Jesus didn't grow up in a large house. He grew up in a small house. He didn't have access to the best education. He was in a small town with mostly illiterate people. He didn't grow up wearing the finest clothes. He dressed simply. We are told at one point he didn't even have a place to lay his head. His father wasn't a king. He didn't have a significant job. His dad was a carpenter. His, his earthly father, his adopted father was a carpenter. So he helped his dad. Well, it's all pretty much all we, we don't know anything of Jesus from 12 all the way up to 33. So pretty much all we know is that he just helped his dad make chairs and tables and stuff and build things. And that's all Jesus, he was just faithful. He just did that. He didn't get to travel the world and have all these amazing experiences. He stayed pretty close to his hometown in Nazareth. He was just a humble man who was God. Jesus came to Mary. And I love that. I love that. See, religion tells us to do our best, to try harder, to do more, to achieve more in order that God would love you. And this story of Mary is one that says God looks down. He has favor upon this one woman. He gives grace to her, which shows that he gives grace to everyone who doesn't deserve it. He loves them. He embraces them. He gives them meaning, value, and purpose. He changes them. And God does this. Why? Because he's altogether good. That's who he is. And it's why we love Jesus so much more than religion. That's why we love Jesus. You see, religion is only for the good people. At least that's what religious people think, right? But Jesus is for everyone else. He's for the sinners. He's for the broken. He's for the, the failures. He's for the hard-hearted. He's for the stiff-necked. He's for the nobodies. He's for the people that are from nowhere. <laughs> the uneducated, the peasants, the poor. The outcast, the marginalized, the weak, that's who Jesus is for. And grace is all it takes to cover over all of that. That's all it takes. And so if he's humble enough to be with Mary, isn't it wonderful that he's humble enough to come and be with us here in this place, to be with you, to know that Jesus wants to be with you. Not because you're amazing, not because any of us are amazing, but because he is. He's the God of grace. So I'm going to pray, and as I, as after, when I'm finished praying, we're going to sing a song. And any time during this song, when you are prepared in your heart to take communion, we invite all of you who are, everyone who is a member of, the, of, of God's people, his body, his church, universal. You call yourself a Christian. You have faith in Christ. You're welcome to take communion with us. There's communion on two tables on two sides of the room on this table over here and on that table over there. And this is also the time when those who are committed to this fellowship, if, if you've, uh, God's laid it on your heart to bring an offering, that's what the basket's there for too, um, to support what God's doing. Let's pray together. Father God, I do pray uh, for all here today who hear this message, who all might hear, who all will maybe hear the message after today, um, that as we think about Mary, that where our hearts and our minds would go is that not that Mary would be the object of our faith, but that she would be an example of incredible faith. God, what an amazing young woman. 
And I pray for us as a people who desire to have faith as Christians, that we would look to this simple, humble young woman and we would celebrate your favor with her, that we would celebrate your grace and that we would actually enjoy it ourselves. I pray that we would enjoy responding today in faith and in song, just as Mary did. And we'd be willing to go from here and live our lives as servants, just as Mary did. Loving your son, just as Mary did. For it's in his name we pray and respond. Amen.